everyone. My name is Nick. I'm the associate minister here at Knox. Good, good opportunity for an introduction. And it sounds like I'm on. So that's wonderful too. Whether you've been in church for a while or you only come at Christmas, and even if this is your first time in church, but you've seen enough Christmas specials around this time of year, you've probably heard those verses from the book of Isaiah before. They're the Christmas verses. They're the obviously Jesus verses. But before we understand them in that way, we have to understand why Isaiah says these things at all, why these words matter to the people who first heard them. So we'll get to Jesus and Christmas, I promise. But before that, a detour through some ancient history. The prophet Isaiah prophesies when Ahaz is king of Judah. Ahaz is probably short for Jehoahaz, which means the Lord has held. And the fact that it's shortened to just Ahaz leaves its meaning as has held. The Lord is missing, perhaps a hint to us of the trouble of this king and the despair he will bring to his people. During his reign, King Ahaz was approached by two of his neighbors, Israel and Damascus, with their concerns about a rising power in the region, Assyria. He should join them to oppose Assyria. Ahaz didn't like being told what to do. Isaiah suggested he should be cautious of alliances with strange kingdoms. Ahaz would not be. Isaiah suggested that maybe he should consult with God. Ahaz would not, and cloaks his refusal with holy language. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. But whether or not Ahaz wanted it, he would receive a sign. And despite the warning, the king allies himself with Assyria to deal with those neighbors of his for whom he had no love. The northern kingdom of Israel is now dominated by Assyria, as is Damascus, but so is Ahaz. And so is his kingdom of Judah. He now owes loyalty to Assyria and soon as well to the Assyrian gods. As a matter of fact, Ahaz appreciates the power and the culture and the religion of Assyria so much that on a trip to Damascus, he sees an altar which he chooses to replicate in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, in Ahaz's reign, a divided people are more divided. Judah knows peace for now at the cost of the destruction of their brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom of Israel, at the cost of selling their culture and their faith to Assyria. A hundred years later, the prophet Jeremiah would prophesy about exactly this sort of peace. He writes, for from the least to the greatest of them, everybody is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everybody deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Ahaz has secured a temporary peace within his borders at the cost of much pain, and much more pain that is yet to be seen or known. Worse, it's not just Ahaz. He could have made a bad alliance with Assyria, built an altar in the temple, worshipped Assyria's false gods all on his own. But the people follow, 
Judah has joined in this rebellion against God, and the northern kingdom of Israel as well. A divided kingdom united in their sin, as now all of Israel participates in this rebellion against their Lord. King Ahaz has brought his people to the darkness of idolatry, has brought death from an empire to their doorstep, and has surrounded them with war. That world of Israel and Judah, of a king whose decisions so directly impact the lives and the faith of his people, that world may seem far away to us. But we know that kind of world, don't we? We get it when the prophet Jeremiah talks about people who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We are familiar with how the strong impress their will upon the weak, how the rich lord it over the poor, how the powerful use their power to their own advantage. We today hear of wars waged in the name of peace, where hospitals are targeted and children lie beneath the rubble, where the cycle of violence secures only more violence. We are familiar with rulers who put their own whims ahead of the good of their people and of the great many who hoard up more and more for themselves at the tremendous expense of the poor and the suffering. We live in a nation whose history of peacekeeping has often been our pride, yet where missing and murdered indigenous women and girls cannot have justice, let alone the protection they need. We live in a city where divisions and fears are stoked by our leaders who pit homeowners against those without homes, and where anti-Semitism in the pursuit of peace for Gaza has grown by the weak. And here, yes, here in this place, every week we pass the peace of Christ among each other with barely a thought to the grudges we hold the unforgiveness we harbor. We invoke the peace of Christ so casually, neglecting his command to be reconciled to each other personally. Every week we should find perfect peace among us again, and yet we don't. And when we do that, we mock the very promise that we long for. The thing about true peace The thing about flourishing life that God offers is that it's only real, it's only lasting, only the peace that we're actually yearning for when it is for all people. As long as some people are free and others are not, there is no peace. While divisions yet divide us, there is no peace. While some still cry out in need, peace still evades us. No matter how much we say there is peace, until it is in all places forever and ever, there just isn't. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Ahaz has led his people into darkness. But the prophet proclaims the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There is light in the darkness, hope in the trouble, good news to hold on to, a king is coming. 
Now this is not good news for Ahaz, nor will it be good news for those who God uses the nation of Assyria to deal with their wickedness. But it will be good news for Jerusalem, good news for Judah, good news even for Israel and for the Gentiles in the land of Galilee. When this king comes, instead of dwindling away, the nation will grow. Instead of a meager harvest, they will know abundance. And instead of themselves becoming the spoils of war, they will divide the spoils amongst themselves. God has turned the expected outcome, maybe even the deserved outcome, upside down. The mighty he has brought down from their thrones and the lowly he has lifted up. The king will come and break the yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. This is certainly a spiritual promise. They will be set free from the idolatry that they know. They will be free to worship the true God again. But we can see here that it is also a very real and physical promise. Assyria has taken part of the northern kingdom, subjugates the rest of it, and demands homage from the kingdom of Judah. There is a very real, very present enemy that must be undone for these people. So how will this king do it? Most kings, most governments, most leaders bring peace by war. But this king will not. Rather, he will bring peace by the undoing of war. The boots of war are simply fuel for the fire because God is at last bringing real peace. Then Isaiah provides a vision of the enthroning of this king. In the ancient world, it was common for kings to be given several names when they were enthroned. The names of this new king are Wonderful Counselor. Too bad Ahaz would not heed his counsel. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Father of the Age to Come, and Prince of Peace. He is Prince of Peace, meaning freedom from war, certainly, but also the Prince of the Covenant of Peace, which promises that good and flourishing life for all creation. The people misled and abused by King Ahaz, oppressed by Assyria, estranged from brothers in this divided kingdom, are promised a peace that will last, a new kingdom where justiceness and righteousness will be known forever and ever, something like they had never seen before, but which they had always hoped for, the peace of God made real in their lives, in their nation, and for all people. The nation of Judah's next king, Hezekiah, was righteous beyond Ahaz's wickedness. In fact, in 2 Kings, it says there was no king like Hezekiah before him or after him in all the history of Judah. Israel received a small taste of this promise, but we believe that it has ultimately found its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, the child born for us, the son who was given to us, in whom all authority rests, who is truly wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of the age to come, prince of peace. All the trouble, 
all the unrest, all the chaos and war and grief of our world finds hope in this peace, which is Christ. The good news to the people of Judah that a king is coming remains good news for our hearts and our lives today. A king has indeed come and is surely coming who will bring abundance where once we fear scarcity, who will proclaim peace in places that have never dreamed of peace at all, who will divide the spoils of his victory over death among us, and in whom we will know life forevermore. In him, the yoke of slavery has been broken, the bar across our shoulders loosed, and the rod of our oppressor is no more. And this is still a spiritual promise. In Christ, we are not only freed from our idolatry, but also from all the bondage of sin, and we are made free indeed. But just as importantly, this is still a physical promise. In Christ, good news is proclaimed to the poor. And good news proclaimed to the poor sounds like food for the hungry, housing for the unhoused, friendship to the lonely. In Christ, we realize that all the cycles of violence are ended because he took the violence of our world upon himself. And when in justice and righteousness he could have retaliated, he gave himself up to death. And at last, he asked his Father to forgive us, for we know not what we do. In Christ, to us a child has been born, and to us a son is given, and the government is upon his shoulders. Of this strange way of kingly ruling, the second century father and father of Western theology, Tertullian of Carthage, writes, Now what king is there who bears this ensign of dominion upon his shoulder, and not rather upon his head as a diadem, or in his hand as a scepter, or else as a mark of some royal apparel. But the one new king of the new ages, Jesus Christ, carried on his shoulders both the power and the excellence of his new glory, even the cross, so that according to our former prophecy, he might thenceforth reign from the tree as Lord. He carries our peace on his shoulders. As he bears the cost of our peace, he is enthroned in power. Truly, he is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace and brings good news to the poor, all the poor, all the hurting, all the lost and lonely and forgotten, because he knows their suffering. He knows our suffering. He knows life without peace. And he comes to us as our comfort and our hope that in him we may know the peace of his kingdom. And we, inasmuch as we see that good news today, as much as we proclaim these things today, and as much as we participate in Christ's peace in our lives, we have also tasted this promise and truly have passed Christ's peace to another. This is the second week of the season of Advent. And you will often hear us say that Advent is a season of waiting 
of longing, of expectation. And it is these things. But that's not what it is primarily. Rather, it is about what comes while we wait. That's where we get the name for this season. Adventus is Latin for arrival. This season is primarily about the arrival of Christ in whom we know all hope, all peace, all joy, and all love. And the good news of this season of arrival is that Christ arrives whether or not we've been waiting for him. If this were just the season of waiting, the church could have called it expectance, which is Latin for waiting. And it sounds like a good name for a season of the church year, but we call it Advent. We name it for the arrival because you know what? We're bad at waiting. We're so bad at waiting, we try to make things happen on our own and we make it worse. How many wars did the church wage to bring peace to the Holy Land? None of them did. How many programs has our government run to bring peace to our city? None of them have. How many things have we tried to bring peace to our lives and to our families? We're still trying, and none of them will. We are bad at waiting, and we try to do that which we cannot do. But this season is not first about the waiting, but about the arrival which comes whether or not we waited, whether or not we expected it, whether or not we thought it could ever happen. In this season of Advent, we remember that God has come to us, that peace has come to us. Peace has come to us the only way we could receive it, in a child born for us, in one with authority who proclaims peace to us and peace to our world, even from the cross. Now we say, Peace, peace, not because there is no peace, but because in Christ we have seen the true peace of God. And as we bear witness to him, as we share his good news, as we proclaim forgiveness with him, we taste the peace that we will one day see. And we long that others would know that peace today as well. We remember in this season that our yoke has been broken. Our oppressor's rod, lost. The promise has come, and the fullness of the promise is coming soon. Peace will reign on the earth. Life will flourish in every place. We will not train for war anymore. This is all promised, and it will be. Because as bad as we are at waiting, God is better still at arriving, even when nobody was waiting for him at all. So we wait for the day when the true and full peace of our Lord will be established with justice and righteousness forever and ever. When the prince of that covenant of peace brings life which will subdue death and subvert war and strife forevermore. This will happen, but we will not accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord alone will accomplish this. And as we wait, 
with whatever faith we can muster. We cry that simple Advent cry, Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. I wonder how the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you in these scriptures and in these words. And I want to invite you to a time of prayer. Simply a time of prayer for peace. Whatever that means for you this day, this hour. And that somehow we might join gladly in the arrival of Christ's peace even today.